Hello, this is Melissa Hale, Spencer, the editor of the Altamont Enterprise, here today with David McDonald, who I'm finding out just in a little chat is a fascinating person. What brought me to call him here was a release he put out on a script he's written on Ella Fitzgerald. So I think we'll start by just talking about that. You mentioned that you had found out about her little-known early history from the Hudson Prison Public Memory Project. Just tell us what you read there, what that is, and how you discovered that. Well, Ella Fitzgerald, it's uh, sort of a fascinating backstory to Ella Fitzgerald's life that has uh, recently been um, uh, become public. Um, like more people are aware of this now. Um, there was this, I think, a viral video that went out a few months ago about it. But uh, Ella Fitzgerald, when she was young, uh, was part of the Great Northern Migration. She originally um, <clears throat> uh, uh, grew up in, um, in Virginia. And came up to New York State with her mother in the late 20s, I believe. And her mother settled in Yonkers, New York. And um, obviously a black woman who ended up with a Portuguese man. Uh, A lot of the details of the history of of this time uh, have sort of been lost because it's, you know, 100 years ago, basically. Um, And uh, the mother was working very, very hard. uh, Anyway, the mom died. Uh, we know that the mother died um, when Ella was quite young. A car accident, right? Yeah, and she uh, Ella ended up with her stepfather, and the stepfather was sort of considered to be a, uh, you know, again, with 100 years gone by, no one knows for sure, but historians believe that the stepfather was abusing Ella, and uh, sexually abusing Ella. And so Ella ended up uh, in the care of an aunt, I believe, in Harlem, and, um, you know, um, but the aunt barely took care of Ella as well. So and Ella ended up living on the streets in Harlem and uh, uh, supposedly got jobs as a lookout for a whorehouse and a gambling hall. And she was basically rudderless living on the streets by herself as a 15-year-old or a 14-year-old. Um, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> was uh, snapped up by the police um, originally sent to uh, uh, like a juvenile home in Riverdale. Uh, that didn't work out, so she was sent up upstate to Hudson. And Hudson uh, was uh, the New York tra- training school for girls. There's actually a prison there now, which is a medium security prison that's covered in razor wire. It's an old Victorian prison, um, and uh, it um, you know it doesn't look like it was a very nice place for her. And she was there for less than a year. Uh, and there was, uh, again, rumors of abuse at this prison. Uh, there were uh, black kids, black girls and white girls who were kept separated. There was a white girls choir, um, which uh, apparently Ella wasn't even allowed to sing with. Um, and Hudson during this period of time was like Sin City, uh, which is an interesting story in and of itself because Hudson... Uh, was originally um, uh, founded in the uh, Revolutionary War era when the whaling industry was being attacked out in the open seas by the Redcoats. So they chose Hudson as the second home of the whaling industry back in the 1700s. And um, the entire whaling industry had moved to Hudson. 
and turned Hudson into sort of Sin City on the Hudson. Um, but anyway, so uh, this is in 1933. Um, again, the details of what happened to Ella are very sketchy. Ella never uh, refused to talk about what had happened to her uh, the rest of her life. Um, but, you know, rumors have it that there was a lot of abuse. And after less than a year, she escaped. And um, two, two or three weeks after she escaped, she ended up being cajoled into singing for the first time ever publicly at the first ever amateur night at the Apollo Theater, um, which she won. And the orchestra leader, Chick Webb, was sitting in the, in the audience, and uh, Ella was paroled by the state of New York to the Chick Webb Orchestra. Um, so that's sort of how it all ended up happening. And then, like, six months later, they had their first hit with the Tisket a Tasket. But like the rest of the world never knew really the awfulness of Ella's prehistory before becoming a star. And Ella Fitzgerald was obviously a, a grand dame and very elegant woman um, and never talked badly about anything or anyone. She just refused to talk about it for the rest of her life. And there were times that she was actually invited up to Hudson and she just refused. She didn't want to go there. She didn't want to talk about it. It was a very humiliating experience for her. Um, <clears throat> and I am a sort of a journalist. Um, well, who, let's take a little side trip here now yeah. and hear about your background. Um, well, I, start I'm, at the beginning. Where are you from originally, and I'm originally how did you get from, to Hudson? I'm originally from Brooklyn Heights, New York, which is a very literary literary neighborhood. Um, I grew up uh, the son of a lawyer. Uh, went to good schools, got a very good education. Um, when I was a kid. Um, there are a lot of writers who lived in Brooklyn Heights, including Norman Mailer, is someone I got to know. You, um, you knew Norman Mailer? Yeah. I, um, I ended up at a school called St. Anne's, which a lot of people ended up going to, uh, in Brooklyn Heights. And as a senior at St. Anne's, I got a job as the ticket taker for the Brooklyn Heights Cinema. And school would end at 3.45 in the afternoon, and I uh, would have to take, get to my job at 4.00. Uh, which was about a mile away. So I would run from school to the Heights Cinema. And <clears throat> often when I would get to the cinema for the 4 o'clock matinee, Norman Mailer would be the only person standing there waiting to get in. And, you know, he would be twiddling his thumbs and I would be twiddling my thumbs. Sometimes there were 15 minutes. Sometimes I would get there early. Sometimes I would get there, you know, a minute beforehand. But he was often the only person there. And we all knew who he was, anyone who lived in Brooklyn Heights, you know. And Norman Mailer also had this reputation for, you know, stabbing people and getting drunk at parties and punching people out. And, and so I remember, um, you know, pretty soon after I met him, I went home, had dinner with my parents one night and said, uh, you know, guess who was standing at the Heights Cinema waiting to get in today? And he said, who? And I said, Norman Mailer. They were like, be careful. <laughs> And Norman, uh, you know, when he was sober, was totally nice. Like maybe this was had to do with drinking or women. Like I know he was supposedly he supposedly stabbed his wife, Norris Church, at one point. Uh, anyway, he was nice to me. We were both Mets fans, and so it was just baseball, you know, small talk. Like when we first started talking, and then you know. So cinema stuck with you. You you were taking tickets. I, and I, you had, I always wanted to be a writer. Okay. And um, uh, then um, 
you know, so Norman ended up, Norman and I ended up becoming friends. He had parties. Like, I've heard now as a grown-up about these, this was the late 70s, and there was this one party where Norman was apparently at uh, Max's Kansas City, and the Bob Dylan entourage showed up from Rolling Thunder, and Norman invited them to one of his parties in Brooklyn Heights on his roof deck overlooking the promenade in Brooklyn Heights. And I'm just like, maybe that was the party I went to. Maybe I, you know, I, I remember going to one of his parties and I, you know, I'd left even before the sunset. But uh, yeah, Norman was very nice. And his son actually turned out to be at St. Anne's as well. And then when I graduated at St. Anne's, I ended up going to Bennington College in the mid 80s. And uh, I was in a writing class uh, with Brett Easton Ellis and Donna Tart and Jonathan Lethem, and that was pretty interesting as well. So I've been around a lot of writers yeah. in my life, and um, I originally had wanted to go to Bennington because I wanted to be a novelist, and there was a, a writer named uh, Bernard Malamud who was teaching at Bennington, and I got to Bennington, and I was informed that he had retired that year, oh. so uh, I was sort of disappointed, and... Um, you know, it's just a, a sort of an interesting, you know, quirk of time and fate that all these writers ended up at that school at that same time. And <clears throat> we had some really great writing teachers, one of whom was Joe McGinnis, who wrote uh, The Selling of the President, I, I believe, and Fatal, uh, Fatal Vision. Um, and um, so just been, uh, been around a lot of writers. So it was my intention growing up that I always wanted to be a novelist. Um, but, um, uh, you know, reality calls and my parents were always fixated on me getting a job that paid the bills. So when I, <clears throat> when I graduated from college, um, you know, I got a job at a trade magazine in, in Manhattan and, uh, then I got a job as an editor with, uh, American Field Service, AFS, and I did that for about three or four years. Then I was dating a woman from Berlin, and I decided to uh, move with her to Berlin. So I lived in Berlin between 1990 and 95. And while I was working, while I was living in Berlin, I got a job in the record business there. That's sort of a funny story too. And so I ended up um, being like an American working in the record business in Berlin in, uh, from 1990 to 95. And then I. My mom was sick, so I came back to the U.S. and I got a job with Elektra Entertainment, and I ended up representing bands like The Doors and The Eagles in the late '90s, and then um, in uh, in around 2000, 2001, uh, lost my job in the record business and moved upstate. Uh, <clears throat> ended up in Woodstock, and then um, oh, so my idea about becoming a writer, like. Uh, a lot of writers can probably relate to this because uh, I always felt like I was a storyteller and wanted to tell these deep stories. But one thing that it was never really interesting to me was expository writing or descriptive writing. So, you know, James Joyce can start a novel with 20 pages of just description. Mm -hmm. And it was never my interest. Like I, I, I would start for... 10 years of my life, I would start and stop novels. And I would just get to the point where, yeah, I would get to a point, a section in the fil in the novel where I would need to describe something. And I would just lose my patience and abandon it. So I wrote like five half novels. And then I moved up to, uh, to Woodstock, New York in the, in the early 2000s. And there was this new technology, three chip uh, video cameras 
and it was brand new, so you could actually buy a $3,000 camera and make a movie. And so that's what I ended up doing. Um, I, during that time, I was also writing a lot of screenplays. So I wrote about five screenplays and realized that my love was dialogue and the interaction between human beings. So uh, I ended up then, um, uh, you know, September 11th happened, and I um, wanted to make a statement about what I think had gone wrong uh, in America that had precipitated all this crap that was going down across the world. And uh, so I made this movie called uh, Woodstock Can't Get There From Here, um, which eventually became Woodstock Revisited. And so that's a whole other chapter of my life. But the thing about the Ella Fitzgerald story or the Woodstock movie was basically uh, my work has always been precipitated on being sort of poor and not having a lot of money to throw around and, um, you know, whatever technology is cheap and, and available at the time. Uh, and then <clears throat> being an avid fan of local history, um, you know, with the Woodstock thing, I was sort of curious to tell the story about how Woodstock had really come about. Like half the world doesn't know that Woodstock didn't happen in Woodstock. I was part of that. I knew about that, but I was part of the world that didn't know until I saw the movie, which I really learned a lot from, was that it wasn't some random <laughs> place. It had this entire history that you trace of fostering artists, fostering creative people, and it kind of made a very fertile ground for that to emerge there. I What I loved about your documentary was the way you just layered in the different people from Woodstock um, and their recollections so that by the time you're finished watching it, you feel almost like you're a member of the community, like you you know who these people are and what they're about. It was just it was just lovely the way it did. And the way you're describing your life made me think of this one quote, the narrative voice, which is you said in that movie, nothing happens in a void. One thing moves to another. And I feel like that listening to your life, you know, how things built one on the other. And with Woodstock, you did that starting way back at the 1900s, just kind of tell people in a sort of a nutshell that arc that you traced in Woodstock. Um, well, again, um, you know, I'm an internet. I've been I've lived a lot of my life overseas and I speak a lot of languages and I never really felt a, a thousand percent like uh, an American. I'm a citizen of the world. And so, you know, I went and lived in Berlin for five years and I, I was an international publicist in the record business and I speak French and German. So living, coming back to the U.S. was always just sort of like, I never felt like, I mean, I'm an American, like I'm, I'm like a big Frank Capra fan if you're a movie buff, like that kind of American. Um, but uh, I also have had enough distance to be able to observe my own culture. And when, so, you know, I always felt like we weren't addressing the causes for things uh, that, you know, and we still haven't, and we ended up with, I don't want to get political here, but we ended up with Trump, which is a, another way of not addressing things. Um, and so uh, I happened to be living in Woodstock, and I was always felt like I had a big story in me, and uh, September 11th happened, and I felt sort of hopeless and helpless to do anything about it, and then the world went askew, and, you know, I would go to my local Delhi and Saugerties, and there would be people standing in line going, we need to bomb those guys. We need to nuke blah, blah, blah. And 
I thought, well, we're not really taking into account our own responsibility here. And when I moved to Woodstock, okay, so I worked in the record business in the 90s, so I'm a music person. And so I know, like, the band and Bob Dylan. Like, I'm a huge Bob Dylan fan and a huge band fan. So when I was in the record business with all these wacky, abusive people, because it's a very crazy business, or was, I always thought, you know, well, actually, the genesis is one of the guys on my press list was an English journalist named Barney Hoskins, who wrote for Mojo and Uncut and all these music magazines in England. And when we would have a concert, we have a concert at Madison Square Garden, ACDC, and we have a dinner with the band afterwards down in Chelsea. Hey, Barney, you want to come down from Woodstock and be a part of the, the scene with us? So he would come down from Woodstock. We didn't know what Barney was doing up in Woodstock, but we all, all of us publicists at Electra wanted to know, tell us about Rick Danko. Tell us about, you know, what do you know about blah, blah, blah. What do you know about Van Morrison's life up there? And he would regale us with stories. So this was in the 96, 97. And I always thought, if I ever lose my job in the record business, I want to go up to Woodstock. Woodstock. <laughs> Plus, I, you know, I had been like to concerts every night of my life for 10 years. Like I had gone and seen Jeff Buckley. I had been, you know, had dinners with ACDC. So I didn't have much to prove. I had lived pretty large back during that era. So by the time I moved to Woodstock, I was ready to like explore my creativity, to take a deep breath and really write that novel, right? Mm -hmm. I've been putting on, I was too busy working as a publicist in the record business to write the novel. Plus, I kept on abandoning the novels. So I get to Woodstock, and then September 11th happens, and it's like, oh, dear. And also, so when I moved to Woodstock, Barney had left already. <clears throat> Turns out Barney had written a book about the band while he was living there. He hadn't told us. But I would go to the bar in Woodstock, and someone would say, don't sit in that chair, that's Rick Danko's chair, and, or that's Paul Butterfield's chair. And I, would, I was like, they're all gone, they're all dead. What happened in this town? Like the town of Woodstock had died. There was nothing going on in Woodstock except these memories. But you have this great scene in the film near the end where the cemetery has all these artists. And yeah. you have that wonderful <clears throat> Kramer, was that her name? Eileen, yeah. Yeah, <clears throat> and she's wishing she could have a cocktail up there because that's where all her friends are. And she's she's looking and naming each of the people. It's a great end to your film because you've introduced them as live people. Yeah. And here she is looking at their grave and sort of repopulating in her head these... Well, that's so great that you wa actually watched it because, yeah, so I'm living in a town, nothing is going on in the town, you know, the, except all this nostalgia about the hippie days. And to me, you know, September 11th happened, and I'm like, well, the 60s didn't work, clearly. You know, the, it, something happened along the way. And so it, in my mind, it all became this started jumbling up. But I, so I wanted to tell the story about what had happened to the American counterculture and using the Woodstock and the name Woodstock and the Woodstock Festival as a metaphor. And then it just so happened that I was friendly with these older people and I had, oh, there's so many funny things that happened. Like I got the camera 
And I had always worshipped the work of uh, Elliot Landy, who's the photographer who took the famous pictures of the band and Bob Dylan. And I would see Elliot out at restaurants, and I would say to him, I'm going to make a movie about Woodstock one day, and I want you to be in it because, you know, you took all the great pictures. And he'd be like, who are you? (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, I really have an important story to tell. Really, I really do. And so um, anyway, so... uh, yeah, I was like the the guy who didn't, didn't know any better. I had the camera. I bought Final Cut Pro. I bought a Big Mac. I taught myself how to edit film. And I just would sit in front of... The, but you found this history and made it live. You started yeah, with Birdcliff, was it called? This right, arts Bird and crafts Cliff, movement Maverick. that I didn't even know existed. And yeah. then you have you know, pictures of the people that founded it and then interspersed with the artwork and you layer in music so that you get this whole experience starting with that and moving through the century on the various creative people that have formed this fertile field. And that town historian, I don't know if that's his actual Richard Whoa. Hebner or Alf Evers. But he's, Alf Evers he, was 100 when I was filming yeah, him. Yeah, and he's... All right, so here, it's funny, because I'm going to move forward now to my life currently, because okay. I've just finished a series. I'm working on a uh, TV pilot, I guess you could call it. Uh, you know, who knows what a TV is anymore these days, called The Mystery of Creativity. And it's about the connections between creativity and spirituality. So <clears throat> now back 15 years, when I made the Woodstock movie... I had no idea what I was doing. I had no idea of my own limitations. I, I had been a, write, a journalist for years, but uh, I had never picked up a camera before, never done sound, never filmed anyone, never cut film. And I, I just wanted to make this epic story. And I just, as a curious person, like I'm sitting with you, sit down with these old folks in town and they'd be like, you have no idea what the town was really like. <laughs> but you know, these old women and then yeah. you'd show a picture of one of them young and very different hot. looking. <laughs> yeah. yeah, beyond hot. I'm like, <laughs> and reminiscing and over there, so-called naughty, they use the word. Yeah. It's just great on um, yeah. the perspective of age. But what I wonder about, because you seem very invested talking about the whaling history of Hudson, is the sense of place, because that historian talks about each individual place is like a headwaters. And we have in our selves from when we live in a place, something that the place gives to us. And that's what I feel is really kind of missing in America these days, because there's such mobility. And it seems like you captured this idea of a place that fostered creativity through generations. Well, it's, wow, this is a a great subject for me to talk about, because I just happen to be someone, okay, so I I made this movie, right? And I didn't had never made a movie before and I I think it's like an epic. It's like a you know, I look back on it and I'm like, how did I do that? How the hell did I make that film? Like I didn't have anyone to tell me I could or couldn't do it. I just made a movie. And I didn't have a sound person or a gaffer or an audio technician or a lighting person. I would sit with the camera. The camera had a mic on top of the camera. And I would put the camera on a table because of the sound. I didn't know anything about sound. And I would put a camera on the blanket and point it up at someone's nostrils <laughs> just because we were in a loud place. And it was like I knew that the sound was important, that it couldn't have. And so 
I made this thing. And it was, it's like a mystery to me how I made it. It, it's a, it was a mystical experience. And uh, I channeled this movie. Like, I had read little bits about Woodstock history, but primarily I found out about the history while I was filming these old people. And then I found out about Birdcliff, and I found out about Maverick, and this was part of their world, you know, these 70-year-old or 80-year-old And for people ladies. that don't know what Maverick is, it was a festival itself that right. brought so, people from all <clears throat> over in very kind of outrageous ways <laughs> to do plays and hear music. and Yeah, in the 19-teens, there were thousands of people coming up from New York City from Greenwich Village mm-hmm. to come to this big field mm-hmm. just outside of Woodstock, thousands of people would be getting hammered, drunk, and having sex in the woods and go skinny dipping. So the Woodstock thing had happened 50 years before, and it was part of the tradition of the town. So then in the middle 60s, in 1963, uh, <clears throat> started actually with Peter, Paul, and Mary. Peter Yarrow's family had a house in Woodstock, a second home. Peter was being managed by Albert Grossman. Grossman came up to visit Peter Yarrow's house. Grossman took a shine to Woodstock. Grossman bought a big chunk of Bearsville, and he became the Baron of Bearsville. Albert Grossman was Bob Dylan's manager. You know, Bob Dylan was living in Greenwich Village, being harassed. He was getting famous. Albert said, come on up to Woodstock. Bob went and lived upstairs from the Tinker Street Cafe with the family that was taking care of the cafe and ended up writing the whole Another Side of Bob Dylan record while living upstairs from a cafe in Woodstock before he was superstar, before he was too famous to do it. And so um, anyone in the music world who was a, it was like Bob Dylan was the god even back then. So if you were a member of Frank Zappa's band or uh, the Blues Magoos or whoever, they all wanted to be sort of in Bob Dylan's energy field. So they all these bands started moving up to Woodstock in the mid-60s, long before the Woodstock Festival. So, you know, I was just like, I did not know that Van Morrison was living up on Spencer Road in 67 or that Jimi Hendrix had a house in Boyceville I mean, they all wanted to be part of his world or his sphere. So all these bands were living in Woodstock. Yeah, well, it started with Dylan and then the band. They were his backing band. Right. So he went on tour with them in 66. Then he uh, had his motorcycle accident, which, you know, is a great object of speculation. Did he really? Did he not? Was he a drug addict? Did he just need to drop out for a while? So it was Bob... And the guys in the band, and they lived on Big Pink, which is out at Stoll Road. So for me, like, I'm and I'm sort of an empath, right? Like I, hear yeah. Stories. I mean, at one point you describe it. Um, someone does in the film, but like a Paris, a feeling of you can run into an artist anywhere as well, if you're in a Paris but, cafe. But that just, was in uh, it was in 1940. So yeah. then one of the reasons Bob Dylan came up in '63, '64 was. He was tired. He wanted to be a painter. Yeah. And, he, you know, George Bellows and Kuniyoshi and all these old artists have been living in, in Woodstock, you know, famous 
mostly landscape painters, which was funny because in the 40s and 50s that became out of mode. Fashion, yeah. But a lot of the WA landscape people were living in Woodstock or had second homes in Woodstock. So when Bob moved up to Woodstock in the 60s, he started training. He started studying under one of the painters, I forget whom. And... um, but so now you're doing this TV pilot on creativity. All right. So you, you asked me about the energy of places, right? Yeah. So I come to this town and like maybe the average person, you know, drives in, drives out. Like I, I get here. I just want to like walk up and down every street and look in every house and eat at every restaurant. Like I'm hungry for life. And, it, you know, the energy of being a creative person is a – giving and taking energy so anyway i made this movie right and i i had no reason to believe that i could make a movie and the movie hasn't really been that great in my life it's been more problematic than good for a variety of reasons um but um it was a absolutely mystical process like i i look back at that movie and i'm just like how the hell did i do that (laughs) But it's been sort of like that with all my work. You did a similar thing. It looked to me, and I wasn't able to see it. It was um, shown at the local library about a 1959 film that had been made. And then you talked, apparently, to the people in the town of Hudson where the movie was filmed and did something with that. What was it? Well, that was based on Odds Against Tomorrow. And so, you know, I'm always... Working on bare bones, I'm always working with cheap cameras, cheap microphones, uh, but I'm also always trying to figure out a way to uh, put a a bridge between my own intellectual uh, life and the concept of the empowerment of my fellow human beings. And um, because you're working with really big. Big, big themes with your little, little budget. Right. <laughs> because it seemed like, and I was not familiar with that 1959 film at all. I had to go look it up on Wikipedia. But what, what I read about what you had done with it was you had drawn out of it themes about racial tension, about the McCarthy era, the sense of um, oppression in the country at that time, in the well, same I, way that... I'd, you know, I live in a place and I'm like... I always, like you, you must have imagined what it would be like to have been here 50 years ago. You know, it so happens that Harry Belafonte uh, had a second home outside of Hudson and made this movie in 1959 called Odds Against Tomorrow, which um, Belafonte, being a longtime liberal uh, member of of the civil rights movement, one of the actually big funders of the civil rights movement, um, he was also best friends with... uh, Sidney Poitier, and Poitier had made that movie with Tony Curtis where they both escaped from the prison in their shackle together. I forget the name of that. Anyway, Belafonte makes this movie in 1959 with Robert Ryan where they play a black guy and a white guy who are both racists, uh, both sort of ex-cons who are recruited to rob a bank in Hudson, New York. It's got a different name in the movie, and the black guy and the white guy are both so full of anger at each other that they can't cooperate with each other. And so the whole thing becomes a big cluster blank. <laughs> and, and at the end of the movie, there's this big explosion. And it's impossible to live in, on Warren Street in Hudson, which I have for the last five years, 
you know, and watch this town gentrified in a, such a spectacular manner so that I made a, mo- a video for the New York Times eight years ago in which uh, Melissa Aftermeyer from the Basilica Hudson is pontificating about turning this city into the next great home for artists in America. And she comes from Montreal, and I lived in Montreal. And we're going to turn Hudson into the next great artist city. And eight years later, it's Maseratis and, you know, Hummers and whatever parked on Warren Street. And there was a brief period where artists moved to Hudson, yes. Most of them moved in and got priced out already. So, you know, and Hudson has been... Uh, revitalized and turned into this gorgeous museum town for tourists now in the eight years since I've lived there. And so I'm always thinking about what was Warren Street like back in the day? Well, in Odds Against Tomorrow in 1959, Warren Street was a street that had, you know, a a Sears on it and several supermarkets and a music store. Uh, for the last five years, there hasn't been a supermarket in downtown Hudson. You have it's to go out to the mall. It's all very expensive antique right. stores. It's, and, well, yeah. the antique stores have been priced out. <laughs> oh, have they? Okay. So I now it's know. like West Broadway and Soho. Yeah. And people come to Hudson for these restaurants where you pay 100 bucks for a meal. And they're like, there's an influx of hotels in Hudson. So I'm always trying to sort of use the work that I'm doing to make a statement about what I perceive to be. So you went and talked to some of the people that were extras in that yeah, movie yeah. about the time yeah. that they had in there and what U- it was like. Ultimately, though, like that <clears throat> that project, I won the New York uh, Foundation of the Arts uh, Individual Artist Award for 19, uh, 2017 for that project. Um, a few things stopped me continuing to work on that's why I sort of switched over to the Ella thing. Um, so now tell us what <clears throat> what are the big themes in the Ella thing as you call it. Um I mean you mentioned in passing in this era of Trump why is this an important <clears throat> story? What Well, what? you know, I have this um, gift right and <clears throat> the gift hasn't necessarily translated into world fame or, or money. But it's like this amazing gift of creativity. And it's a mystery to me that how I got it and how I developed it. And, um, you know, it translates into making these movies. But for me, it's like a movie is great. It's a movie. It's fantastic. And maybe that can change people. But I also want to do my work in tandem with my fellow human beings while I'm here on this planet. And the empowerment you know, the work is all about raising consciousness and, and being somebody who, like all of us, is watching what's going on in the world and is horrified by what's happened. And so I'm uh, a warrior for the uh, empowerment and the rise in consciousness because this is where we've come to. It's like we need to raise our consciousness as human beings or we're going to implode as humans. So uh, <clears throat> how did I get to the Ella Fitzgerald project? Well, it's me, one thing for me to do my writing and screenwriting in the privacy of my own room and come up with a good script. But I, wanna, I actually want to use the work to, to empower my, my fellow people and kids and turn them on. So the Harry Belafonte thing, Harry's 90 or 91 or whatever, I wanted to have him come to Hudson 
and get the key to the city. I actually worked with the mayor to award him the key to the city. Um, we had an invitation ready. I was reaching out to him. I never got an answer back from the Belafonte people. That was one thing. Um, and then the intern scene, the politics and racial politics in Hudson uh, are so ugly that I really didn't want to open up the, that Pandora's box. So there were a variety of reasons that I just thought, I don't want to do that. The Ella Fitzgerald story is uh, a story that instead of using that 1933 story as a sort of metaphor for where we are now, all the, I mean, that is the case because if you look at the Ella Fitzgerald story and the history of African-American incarceration in America, this is the perfect example, like a poor victim of a 15-year-old girl who turns out to be the most elegant woman ever was imprisoned for basically being poor and being abused by her stepfather. Like, she, it's Dickensian. So that's what appealed to me. But also the idea like, all right, I'm going to use the story and involve my town. And there are lots of young African-American kids in my town and kids of color, but white kids, black kids, whatever. Everybody can relate to this story and we'll do it here. This is where it happens. So, so it'll become a theatrical production? Well, that- originally I was like, I'm just going to make a, a film for nothing. I'll make a zero-budget film and get kid actors to play the roles. And hopefully I'll you know, find that kid who's supremely talented or whatever. And then I started gathering a team. And somebody was like, why don't you just do it as a play first? And I'm like, duh, of course. <laughs> yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, they're like one of the things like about Hudson, um, sort of, uh, you know, a, a lot of these towns in upstate New York, Kingston, Hudson, Saugerties, you know, they're full of ex-New Yorkers who are over-talented, who don't have any work. You know, we come up here and we're like, I'm going to live upstate. There's no jobs. You know, who's going to got a job for a set decorator, you know, in upstate New York? So I thought I'll get I'll give people work. And that's another thing. Like, it's part of the grand plan. It's like the empowerment of my fellow human beings. We'll give them jobs. We'll start a production in Hudson. So that's ultimately why I'm here today is like um, the job is to take the art, which is metaphorical, right? You know, art is a, a way of portraying something and actually making it real. Real. Well, so to that end, we should have you tell what your GoFundMe page is in case somebody is listening and wants to contribute to this project. Well, um, again, it's like, do you want your kids to be out there doing things and learning about the world and participating and doing creative work? This is the project. This is like... You know, sometimes I I have to do I have to I'm in competition for the the buck that no one wants to give, and there's someone who does, um, you know, I don't want to den- denigrate other people's art, but there's work that you know it's uh, conceptual or um, you know I I make art out of three hammers stuck together. Not again, not to criticize other people's work, but this is real work that's meant to. Uh, empower the community and to turn people on and turn people on to creativity because we're at that stage in human history where we're presented with a choice. We either are creative or we're destructive. And um, so 
uh, I'm tooting the horn of like everyone learn how to make something, everyone learn how to do something, participate, be involved. Back to Birdcliff. Yeah. (laughs) Well, that might be a good ending to have come full circle. We've used our time, but if you have any closing thoughts, sometimes I miss the most important thing to someone. Yeah. Well, um, the the most the thing for me is like um, when I when I made this Woodstock movie, I had no idea that I could do it. Right. And we as human beings are capable of 10 times more than we even know we are. And so you've got to learn how to open up those channels of your own creativity. And so uh, a lot of it was accidental for me. You know, uh, people have various ways of doing it. Some people take long. My thing is I take long walks. I I get all my ideas while I'm hiking generally. But um, uh, trying to help people uh, open up the doors and gateways of their own creativity because ultimately, again, we're at a, a battle for human consciousness right now, and it's a very dangerous time to be alive in the world. And you know, we all know that th- terrible things could happen. But uh, so, it's this idea too that we're all responsible for our uh, our own piece of the pie, putting in our own creativity, and optimizing what we can do as human beings. So, the mystery of creativity, that series that I'm working on, is about uh, learning how to be. A uh, hundred times more than you think you can, because that's really the the secret. I, I think, and it's uh, repeated a lot by Eastern philosophers. It's like find out who you are and be the best you can be, and that's all we can do. Thank you, David McDonald. That's a great and inspirational end note. <laughs>